0: Hello everyone, podcast number 6 of uh, Codina's talk, let's gonna have some music.
1: Welcome to the podcast today, we're going to talk about Rust, um, I'm no expert, so I might be a bit rusty. Um, fortunately, I'm a good company, as we're joined by Cyril, who is a Rust evangelist and Java Hazer, uh, Jorge, who's a functional programming evangelist and talented singer, and Liam, who's a functional programming evangelist, and he is a northerner. Okay, so let's, let's keep this off. Um, so let's start with you, Cyril. How about for our listeners, you describe the history of Rust? Oh, wow, that's uh, (laughs) right of a bat, eh? Uh, That's heavy. So,
2: you know, like, I am still a bit of a hobbyist, kind of transitioning from the hobby to, like, maybe more, like, professional side of Rust. So bear with me, because I may not have the best info here. Um, My understanding is that it started uh, by... Graydon Hall, I believe is the name of the guy. It was like a small research project that he was um, taking on. Then um, Mozilla got involved and they kind of looked at it um, as like a long-term investment because uh, Firefox is, I think, I believe the oldest uh, browser code base in existence. I think some of it kind of, spans back to the days of um, Netscape, the browser. And throughout these years, they discovered that, like, if you have, uh, you know, tens of millions of C++ code, sometimes it's kind of not that easy to maintain Or, or uh, if the bugs keep popping up, it's, it's not that easy to squash them without introducing new bugs. So they had this, like, long shot project that would um, in theory allow them to um, just kill all the classes of bugs they've seen during the firefox development so this is why they were interested in that uh, small research project of this one guy and then uh eight years later (laughs) kind of picked up uh and uh right now it's at the stage where it's in uh, production and it's it's used by a lot of like large companies here and there, and I think it's it's really picking up steam. I think uh, n- not to you know <laughs> um, be overly optimistic here, but I've heard that uh, the number of packages on Cargo, which is the uh, Rust package manager, just has surpassed the. Number of packages on uh, the Haskell repo, so I think it's on the it's
1: yeah. on the right track. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. So, so um, I want to kind of dive into Cargo a bit later on, but um, before we go in any further, uh, do you want to share your experiences with Rust um, and how you kind of got came across Rust? Like this is this is mm-hmm. to everyone.
2: <laughs> All we right, can... so. Uh let me talk for a bit then and uh, i'm going to give the, the mic back um so i tend to read a lot of like um, news on the internet on the internet and like i kind of read a lot of like weird news including like the weird part of twitter and i think this is how i came <laughs> to know about rust um and it just kept popping up and like from from very different you know sites and there were people from ruby community talking about that there were people from javascript talking about that there were people from like c c++ um, embedded systems even uh, talking about that and i was like okay let, let me let me check this out um and that, that's kind of that's kind of it i think
0: okay uh, for me it was um... Okay, let's gonna go with this one. Uh, I, I've always been interested in you know, the system, system languages. I, uh, one of my first language probably was C in which I write anything. I did love uh, C++ for, uh, for quite a long while, but once I started doing .NET, I kind of left it, uh, uh, I left system languages on the side. Uh, I was looking at maybe going back into doing something with a language that was designed for systems language and it, it just happened that I think it was at the at the time that uh, Mozilla started to, uh, to sponsor the, no, to announce it when Mozilla announced the project origi- originally again, I kind of started to pay a bit attention to it haven't read haven't read on too much, but uh, I've been keeping an eye because it was uh, on one side quite interesting what they were doing. Uh, some of the uh, how do you call it? some of the features of the language were quite interesting to me, and it's just well one day if I get back into doing things uh, a bit lower level than I am at the moment, Rust seems like the better language available at the moment, or best language available at the moment.
1: Cool. Liam? Okay, so
3: I have always been interested in Languages that have uh, not modern features, because I guess they're not actually really modern, really, in computer science terms, but like advanced language features that uh, sort of uh, take some cognitive load off of me and are placed on the machine, like trying to make the machine do as much as possible, which is how I got into things like Haskell. Um, and from Cyril's evangelism, started to look at Rust and thought, <laughs> oh, that's that's pretty cool. Uh, but then sort of marked it for another time as I had a head full of functional stuff and didn't want to contaminate it, let's say. Um, and then- Oh, wow. Hey, hey come on. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the whole like uh, WebAssembly uh, thing exploded and i was following the mozilla blogs about that um, a woman called lynn clark who has some exceptional diagrams on WebAssembly and blog posts and she also started talking about how you can compile rust to WebAssembly and how you can have rust in npm packages which my daily job is usually node.js at the moment um, so i followed the uh rust in npm tutorials made my own package and started reading the Rust book from there. I think that's that's mainly it. Also, when Cyril said that uh, all of these features are, are through the type system, that was music to my ears. So I was like, "Oh, <laughs> <the> type system!
1: <laughs> that's cool." There's a lot of good stuff there. Um, in particular, I think later on we're going to talk about like kind of WebAssembly or WASM, um, as it's called. Um, okay, so let's let's have a look at kind of the slogan that that Rust kind of adopts in the sense that it talks about like hack without fear. Um, And one example of this might be how Rust attempts to kind of prevent, I say prevent, to deal with segmentation faults in the sense that, um, you know, it's something that, you know, C, C++, you know, something you're going to have to deal with and accept, whereas Rust goes some way to um, transfer this from like like a runtime error to more of a compilation error. Um, and the Rust compiler is awesome, by the way. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but like, do we want to talk a little bit, a little bit about that, about how it can kind of how Rust can help uh, deal with things such as segmentation faults, which would be a a real problem in other lower level languages.
0: Definitely. I mean, part part of the of the reasons uh, was uh, why Rust was created was to try to deal with uh, memory safety and management which has been always a pain to do it on on C and C++ uh, with the different uh, I mean the, having the, the new operator on, on, on C++ and and then having to remember to take things out, uh, you have the resource acquisition as initialization for memory management and C++. Yes, so many things that can go wrong on C and C++ in terms of, uh, of memory and pointers that they get, uh, they get left behind uh, things like data races. Uh, so there's a quite, a, quite a lot of issues related to memory management. I think that was one of the major
1: reasons to create uh, Rust? Yes, I can see that, you know, to Rust, I think it's, they say that one of their kind of, their largest goals was memory safety. Um, and so what, what steps, I mean, maybe without going super low level, what steps does, does Rust go in terms of, uh, trying to make, enable programmers to work with memory in a safe, in a safe manner?
2: Yeah. Who, Who wants to take that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay so i i may uh provide my you know uh layman interpretation um so the prior to rust i've only known about like two really memory models of programming languages that's you can have maybe it's just me not reading papers from the 70s probably it's just that. <laughs> uh, but i i've only known of a model where um either it's c slash c plus plus slash other languages that you do like full-on manual control where you say it's Everything is either on the stack, and then typically compiler tells you, like, OK, this goes on the stack, then it pops right back, and it's kind of OK. But if you want to allocate something even slightly bigger, uh, then you need to manually work with the, with the heap, like using the new keywords, or using the malloc, or using this type of functions in C and C++. And then you work with this memory, and you need to pass the pointer along to a place where you kind of want to free it in the end. And my understanding is that this was the biggest culprit of the um, memory management issues. And uh, because you may forget to free it or you you can like free it too many times even, um, this type of stuff. On the very other side of all of this is, the C sharp slash Java situation where you have a huge uh, VM that kinda does all of this for you. So uh, the only thing you do is you create objects, but their lifetime is managed by the VM itself. So the VM itself typically employs some type of a garbage collection where it periodically scans through the list of objects and sees which one is alive, which one is not. And for the ones that are not, they try to free the memory up. And Rust was kind of neither of those. And this was very, uh, you know, confusing for me (laughs) for a bit. (laughs) Um, Because Rust says that like, look, we understand the manual memory management is not easy to do correctly, right? Because you basically need to track lifetime of objects yourself on a piece of paper in the comments or somewhere. But it's definitely not tracked by the compiler uh, but on the other hand you have a set of requirements that are typically involved with building um real-time systems whether this is like a system for a medical device or a drone or a computer game right uh, where the system needs to react within like a certain Time frame, and this 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 is concerning like the world clock. It's not concerning the computer clock. Um, if you have a garbage collector, this can be bad for this type of situations. This can be seen, for example, in like Java or C sharp um, web servers, where the latency can be quite unpredictable. Right? If you have a lot of small objects, then suddenly you have this garbage collection spike, and your latency with the response to the request can like. Be ten times as much as the previous one. Um, so th- these these are kind of, you know, <laughs> the, the models I was aware of. Either you do it manually or you have garbage collection. Uh, Rust does neither, and basically it, it's quite elegant. I'm I'm not sure like how much detail we want to go into here, as in like how it actually works or how it looks like. What what would you like to hear? Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we could maybe, I mean, we're touching a little bit on ownership in Rust here. Uh, we could give like a high level kind of view of ownership um, in terms of like with a mm-hmm. basic example of say like a function that takes a value and how, you know, you've got like the the three different types of ownership. Um, so, it's, so one thing you touched on there, which I found interesting, is like the paradigm shift from say Java, that when you have garbage collection, and then you move to Rust and you know, you have like these... Uh, Non-copyable values that effectively move, actually physically like move from place to place, whether it's to a different function. And oh. you can't then use that somewhere else. Uh, could you give like a little kind of uh, description of that?
2: Sure. So um, I was on the Haskell conference <laughs> <laughs> and they were talking about something I think I got it right. I think it's called linear types. That this is coming to Haskell. Like, correct me here if I'm wrong.
3: Yep, that sounds but right.
2: Basic, basically, what they said is like. <laughs> we
3: are <love
0: you>. looking <laughs>
3: I see. That, that was a pretty explosive ending, though.
1: Yeah, <laughs> he, he dropped the bike. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah.
2: So I think uh, you lost me for a bit.
0: It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, that was
2: interesting. That was very good. So a Haskell conference, this is what it does to you. Um, so yeah, uh, linear types. And they said that Rust is kind of the only place where it actually is implemented in the world. They want to do something slightly differently because Haskell and research, and it's going to be tremendous, but not yet. Um, that's my understanding at least of the state of linear types in Haskell. So in the Rust, as, you, as you've mentioned some, um, you have this very peculiar like memory model. And at first it can be very weird because the compiler forces you to think about that. It forces you to think about lifetimes of objects, which is if you've been programming for a bit, I think this is kind of somewhere in the back of your mind when you're programming, but it's definitely not in front of you, if you know what I mean. So um, okay, back to back to the models. So the models or the model is that by default, everything gets moved in or the ownership is passed. So imagine you have like a main function and you uh, create a thing in that function and then you call a function from within the the main body, and you pass that thing as an argument. If you would like to use that thing again in the main function, this this doesn't compile at all. So basically the function you called the with a thing now owns the the thing completely, which means that it can do anything it wants with it and it will d- destroy it after it's done. So basically, the Rust manages lifetimes by scopes, and it's very strict about it. Uh, the rule of thumb is that, like, the innermost scope typically owns the thing. So you you have a main function, then you call some other function, which maybe calls another function with that thing, and the one that's kind of at the at the end of that chain owns the the value, and then at the end of that function. The value gets destroyed. This is kind of a rule of thumb. Uh, this is not really about functions per se, maybe in reality, but about scopes. So you can have multiple scopes in the function. But I think it's a, it's a, it's a nice tool to, uh, to like model this uh, at first. I think. So that that's done by default. Uh, if this helps a lot, for example, in a situations where you need to model a state machine. So imagine you have a, I don't know, a file, and you have a handle to that file. That handle, in most languages, can be in different states. You can have an open handle, maybe, and you can have a closed handle, something like that. Um, maybe the file is like uh, open, but you cannot just um, read from it or write to it yet because it's uh, on a like a blocking call or something like that. So imagine there is like a state machine you need to go through there. Uh, So in Rust, you model this in the type system. So basically you have um, a function or even a full full structure that would represent a file that can be opened. Then you have another type that is an open file. And then you have, let's say, yet another type that's a closed file. And you have functions that uh, allow you to transition between those types. And each function consumes fully the previous value, which means that if you had an open file and you want to close it, uh, the function that closes it consumes the file and you cannot possibly have any pointer or a handle or a reference, whatever you want to call it, to file that is open after you've closed it. I'm not sure if this makes sense. <laughs> so ask ask away.
1: That, that, that makes sense. Um... Do maybe talk about how like uh like the the clone and the copy uh kind of uh mm-hmm. methods well, I I shouldn't say methods I should probably say functions uh, in rust um and how they can be used uh to to help developers mm-hmm. uh, espe- especially i guess if you come from say java or c sharp where this is kind of hidden away and you don't just have to worry so much about this um
3: mm-hmm.
1: but yeah maybe maybe just to like give a little sure.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, <laughs> I guess um, while the move is done by default for some types, uh, it would be like inconvenient to to do it this way. So, for example, most people are used to having um, integers uh, or, or numbers uh, in general that work like seamlessly through the function. So, you typically don't need to worry about the lifetime of integers in in any language pretty much that that I know. Um, And this has some historical reasons. One of them being that uh, processors are very good with numbers and typically numbers fit within like one word of a processor and copying a number is not really a big deal. Uh, comparing to, for example, copying a string or copying a, an array or a file, right? This is small enough that, like, uh, you have specialized instructions to 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 deal with numbers. So Rust kind of follows on through that, you know. And uh, what it has is something called copy trait think of traits like an interfaces but but more for for, for you know people from the fp side uh, these are type classes basically um, so it has a copy trait and every everything that like fulfills or implements the copy trait uh, compiler will copy for you and will the copying code for you. So for example, integers implement copy trait. If you have your own type, you can implement uh, copy trait for that type, it's gonna be good. Uh, so basically in this, in this scenario we've mentioned, if the, uh, instead of a file, if we would have an integer, uh, we could still access that integer in the main function afterwards but it wouldn't read the same integer. (laughs) It would be a copy of it. So the innermost function would have its own copy of that integer and main would have its own copy of that integer. They would be the same in value, uh, but they would probably physically be different values. Of course, it depends on like the optimizer and like how the processor actually wants to uh, go through that. But uh, the mental model there is that there are identical copies of of the same thing.
1: Cool, makes a lot of sense. One one thing I wanted to pick up on um, was something that you said earlier, Liam, about um, kind of WebAssembly, um, and maybe just talk through kind of WebAssembly and how it works. But also, like, do you think this will be big for Rust?
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, to talk through WebAssembly and how it works. I really have no idea how it actually works. What I understand <laughs> is, uh, in my limited knowledge, is that it's a small instruction set, I, an assembly language, inside the browser that is basically its USP, is that it's not something you write specifically. It's a compiled target. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Cyril, but uh, Rust compiles to WebAssembly via the um, LLVM, the LLV level virtual machine. So it compiles to that and then that gets compiled to Wasm afterwards. So basically all of these languages are using Wasm as a as a target to compile to, um, which means that you can write in various different languages and run it on the web. And because it's a very small set of instructions, it can be heavily optimized and is very fast.
1: Hopefully, slightly better than Java applets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do a podcast on that. Yeah. That would be good. <laughs>
2: um, I don't think it goes through LLVM just yet, but I think okay. what you describe this is is fairly accurate. I think they're gonna try to go for LLVM in the future because then it's gonna allow, like, you know. Um, one pipeline basically to compile like the all, But right now I think there's like a super special, you know, if wasm <laughs> somewhere <laughs> uh, that emits wasm. But um, my understanding is also that you can run it outside the browser as in like in node environments, I think node understand wasm modules as well. So you can run it yeah. in the browser and I think all the modern browsers actually support Wasm like in their stable versions, but also you can run this outside of Wasm.
0: Well, the, the, default, implementation, Sorry, outside the, browser. the, the default implementation right now is uh, on JavaScript, isn't it? Wasm, the, the interpreter. So that there is no, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, the, the different browsers they don't have yet a compiler of Wasm per se, but they have a, a uh, transpiling from Wasm to JavaScript, and that, that's what is being executed, which is what was
3: on node. Yeah, under the hood at the moment, I think there's a lot of things. In, so, uh, okay, if you compile to Wasm and you want to do anything in the browser, for example, manipulate the DOM, currently most, if not all of that, uh, of those instructions are actually Wasm calling JavaScript, mm. Um, mm. but future work uh, for browser vendors is to is to skip that. So you, from Wasm you control a DOM straight away, if that makes sense. So you don't have to jump through the JavaScript hoop. You don't mm. have to pay that latency, and from then it is yeah. it's uh, it's just Wasm to web.
2: But what I had is like WASM is already like 10 times faster uh, in the browsers. I maybe these are like some micro benchmarks that don't mean much, but like from what what I've seen is there was like this cool like ray tracing demo or something that they did in JavaScript and WASM direct, and it was like 10 times faster in WASM. So so I think it's going to be even faster after the transition you've mentioned.
0: Will it make a difference for us. the fact that you have WASM as a target? Uh, well, I'm thinking I'm thinking two things. So on one side is probably for uh, lots of people out there, if they have a transpiler or or they could, they could compile I mean sorry right now but Java or C sharp into some kind of Wasm with a Taking into account all the libraries and whatnot. Uh even in something like ClojureScript, for example, yeah, which is uh, or or Fable, wouldn't much easier than Grass per se. But then I'm I was thinking that one of the issues that uh, people had at the beginning when we started uh, doing, for uh, uh, how, how single single. Single page applications were memory issues, which they will stay, they will still happen with any language that needs to have a garbage collection. Well, with Rust, which uses this, uh, um, it uses this uh, other memory model. Maybe there is. Where he can say, yeah, I am probably good at this. Hmm.
3: Follow me yeah. There? I see what you're saying.
2: Yeah. I, I think Rust is like very well suited for that because it, it doesn't have runtime. <laughs> As in, there is no, no GC, there is no exceptions, there is nothing that's. Runs that except for your code pretty much so at, at runtime so it's it's very easily to embeddable in other stuff so so it's very good with ffi with you know calling into and being called from other languages if this makes sense I think it's it's gonna be harder for stuff that has a vm and a garbage collector like Java and C sharp because like who manages like what memory is going to be probably an an issue because you're going to have like WASM execution environment with its own VM. And then you're going to maybe have the other one or maybe not. Maybe you would need to translate. Like I think for that reason, maybe slightly harder to, to do it for other languages than, uh, than Rust.
1: Cool. So we spoke a little bit earlier about Cargo, um, like Rust package manager. Um, for, for say our listeners that are say Node.js developers, or how how would this compare to something like npm? Uh, is it does it do anything extra, uh, or is it is it is it pretty much the same as say like a, a Node package manager?
2: So I think it's you can think of it as like npm or something, and I think it's a very good analogy. It's just. I think at least for me it's slightly more pleasant to work with. I, I think the reason for that is that people that came up with cargo were actually people working on NPM before and actually people working on bundler and and jam ecosystem for Ruby before. So they learned a lot, uh you know, uh during that time and they they were like okay, let's take all that knowledge and ca- come up with cargo. So Cargo is slightly more than NPM outside. Um, you can define your dependencies in a in a file. This is kind of the same. Uh, it uses log files by default. So I know this was like uh, an issue in NPM before. I don't think it's that big of an issue right now. Um, there is a package library somewhere on the internet that is like well established. So this is kind of the same. Uh, but then it manages your like other parts of the build process as well. I, I don't know NPM that well, but f- for me, Cargo where it shines is that like it's the single tool to build your whole project, but also to publish your whole project and also like lint it and do other stuff. So people... Either from like, the Rust core team or from the broader community, they came up with a lot of plugins for Cargo that allow you to do like super crazy stuff with your project, basically. And uh, it just works. So yeah. I'm not sure if this is what you wanted to hear about Cargo, but at least that's, no. that's my experience.
1: No, that's fine. I think it sets the expectation as well for people that want to pick up Rust that they know that it's fairly, fairly similar to Node Package Manager. Uh, with maybe a, f- a few extra bits.
3: Um, yeah, I can talk but, a bit more about that, actually.
1: Um,
3: yeah, go Because so, I deal with NPM quite regularly. So just an example between the two. So I was doing a cata recently in Mars Rover in Rust, um, and I wanted to watch file changes. So I found a cargo crate that you download, and then I had... A command available to me, cargo watch, and the uh, the commands that I wanted to run when a file changed. That is comparable to in npm land, uh, node daemon or nodemon or however mm-hmm. you want to say it. But, uh, yeah. Does the same thing, but you sort of have to set it up a little bit yourself. Um, so you would make a, like a little what's called an npm script. So you would download NodeMon, make a script. So it was like skipping that middle bit for you. It was like, oh, uh, you don't have to write your own script; just watch uh, as soon as you've downloaded the crate. So do you th- uh, do you see what you mean about these sort of improvements on uh, yeah, on I think it's
2: like a lot of like small stuff, and this, this has been my experience as well. It's just like. It's it's perfectly to doable uh, doable to you know do all this type of stuff with like NuGet or npm or maybe even Maven, uh, but uh, in Cargo it just it just works. As in like the thing you thought of doing typically is a thing in Cargo and it and it works, right? Yep. Cool.
1: One thing uh, I want to touch on as well is uh, <laughs> so people might be intrigued uh, maybe slightly alarmed at how you can return values from say a function in rust uh i, I think you guys know what i mean uh, uh, so does, does anybody want to take that one in terms of how it might differ from say someone who's used to say java or c sharp talking
3: to you sir <laughs> <Okay, so,
2: laughs> all right And so sorry i'm not sure if i got the question is this like re- Return stuff from functions. That that was the question.
1: Yeah, yeah, and how you, you don't really need the return.
2: Oh, you, you uh, mean like yeah. it, as in the keyword? Yeah, yeah. Uh, return. Okay, so I think this is going to be familiar more to people with like FP background than um, object oriented. But the Rust is like expression based, so pretty much everything is an expression. So if is an expression is not a statement um assignment is um also you you can make it an expression um like pattern matching is an expression is not a statement and like following that function the whole function is an expression as well so basically what you can do is you can do uh, and this is like pretty typical rust stuff you can have like a pattern match on the arguments and the whole match, one match statement resolves to a value and that's, it, that's the body of the function. You don't do like return here, return there. It's like if the whole thing evaluates to a value, if this makes sense. You still can use return as a keyword if you want. Typically it's used for like uh, short circuiting stuff if you wanna return an error, for example. Uh but like using it uh too much is considered like an anti pattern. I think people really like the ability to have um uh, you know, like the whole thing read as an as an expression. I think this may be also how closure and closure script is built as as far as I remember
0: mm-hmm
2: or generally lisp
0: yeah mm-hmm. uh, most functional function along with this the being expression based
3: that's actually Uh-oh. something that tripped me up um when i started uh, playing about with rust when i started doing sort of a, a proper kata with the mars rover um because rust looks sort of so uh c-like in its in its uh syntax I'm used to in those sorts of languages doing uh, for a function saying uh, if a value is this then return this with no else statement and then so like if this return this and then after that block just saying return zero say in Rust that doesn't work because an if statement as you said is an expression so if I have no else branch, then the return from the if statement becomes uh, an empty type, a unit type. Um, that was very surprising because of the C-like syntax. I wasn't expecting that.
2: Yeah. Really, yeah, that's really,
1: gonna be quite surprising. Yeah, go ahead. So I really want to talk about the Rust compiler, but I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna save it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was gonna say like, what what ID? Um, do you guys used for like Rust development? Like, uh, there there is one out there that I found, which uh, I promise it, I didn't make it. But there's one called Corrosion, um, which I think is built, built, on <laughs> um, <laughs> built on top of Eclipse. Um is built on top of Eclipse. And then and then there's various like plugins you can get for like Visual Studio and IntelliJ. Yeah. Um, the one for IntelliJ, the Rust plugin seems pretty good. Like, um, but yeah, what, what do you guys use?
0: Uh, Emacs, like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that the, uh, at the moment the only things that I not do on Emacs are Java and, uh, and C Sharp. Anything else is always on Emacs. So.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been using them. Um, just with a standard mm-hmm. autocomplete um And it's been working fine so far as a sort of as an introduction to the language. And I've heard from a few people that uh, it's not so hard to get, uh, like, go to definition and find usages uh, for Rust in Vim. So I'll probably continue to use that for the near future until something good comes along.
1: Oh, that's yeah. I
2: think these are all. (laughs) good options as in like uh rust has this language server protocol support so in theory anything that understands that should be able to get you go to definition and and other stuff liam mentioned i'm pretty sure vim has that because i i used uh, Vim for rust for quite a while uh vs code works very well uh, VS Code has even like integrated debugger that you can you can use with uh, Rust. As I use Rust for work now, uh, we use C Lion, which is the native languages IDE from JetBrains. So it's basically IntelliJ but for like C, C++, and Rust projects. Uh, and the only reason for that is the refactoring support. Because like navigating code or writing code in Vim is for me like very pleasant. But I'm not that good with Vim to do refactoring in Vim properly or or, or in a fast way. So uh while C lion doesn't support like you know, extreme refactorings just yet, I think it's it's good enough for like uh for for what I do. So so I use C lion mainly with Rust right now.
1: Cool. So, uh, (laughs) I can't contain myself anymore. Uh, I want to talk about the rust compiler. Um, I I think it's amazing. Uh, I said to Jorge earlier, I think it deserves a Nobel prize. (laughs) Um, like it's just, it's just amazing. It actually tries and helps you. Uh, whereas say like when you're doing Java and you, you know, make a mistake, it just kind of says, yep. Yep. You messed up Sam. Um, and then just, just spits out a stack trace at you and it's like, Oh, cheers. Uh, (laughs) uh whereas yeah like like the rust compiler actually um and helps you um and will say oh you know maybe you should have tried this or you know maybe you need to make this thing mutable or what, whatever you're trying to do um yeah like, i i just love it i think it's i think it's amazing i think um and it probably builds on what you said about cargo where they've taken kind of how existing software works and just built on it in terms of like what are all the pitfalls of these things um, and can we make something that's actually useful to people yeah I love it what, what do you guys think
0: well I, I have to say that uh, th- there have been a couple of uh, lately well lately the last few years a couple of uh, languages that have some have some some kind of uh, uh, how do you call uh, ah damn it uh they, they have some some kind of uh, love for the developer. Uh, one of them is Elm, the other one is uh, is Rust. Both of them have really good uh, really good uh, error messages. They give you information about what is going on with your code. Probably the I, I believe that the cargo uh, sorry the Rust compiler is is far more. Uh, I was going to say obnoxious, but it's not really. Uh, it, it, it just doesn't allow you to compile whatever you want, but on top of that, it gives you a lot of uh, help trying to understand why it's not allowing you to compile. Which is it, it is quite great. One of the one of the things I mentioned before, I love closure as a as a language. But the error messages from Closure, I guess, most of them are waste. It's a, it's a massive stack trace from Java, from the JVM that does have no meaning whatsoever. They are working on it right now, so hopefully it will be one part of 1.10, we'll have a better error messaging. But yeah, the, the, the way that uh, the RAS compiler works, it just doesn't allow you to, it's going to force you to write code perfectly.
1: In terms yeah, of... I agree. I agree. It, that's the thing as well, is it, it kind of pushes it from like, say like a runtime, something you might find out at runtime to a compilation error. And it's like, no, no, I'm not compiling that for you. You know, you, be, you better write it properly, you know, and that's quite cool to have that kind of feedback from the compiler um, as opposed to something that just traditionally you would get at runtime, when it's like, oh, <laughs> didn't think about that, you know. So I think that's really cool.
3: It's definitely cool. It's uh, it's strange. It's a bit of a mental switch, where you're used to the compiler being quite silent. When it suddenly becomes quite noisy, uh, you have to change your mindset from, ah, damn, the compiler, stop, stop getting in my way. To, oh no, you're you're genuinely trying to help me. Um, I don't know about you, but I think it's one of the first uh, place, first languages where I've seen the compiler spit out your code and a and like a pointer to a specific place in your code, not just a line number and a and a column number, but literally in the error output. Here is the code that you wrote, and there's a pointer to this bit, and it says here we think this is wrong. Maybe it should be this. That yeah, is really big, helpful. Yeah
1: it doesn't assume that you know yeah. you're expert in line numbers and counting characters you know and you can do it in like sub-second you know it just does it for you no I, I agree
2: yeah and what i really like love about that is yeah. it, it comes from this like i guess very sincere place in in the rust community as in they, they just like love helping people, and I think this is this is why the, the compiler looks like that and the tools like, look like that. I think Stack Overflow survey Rust is like for the third year in a row the most loved language, and I think this is this is kind of connected to that as well, because the community is like so welcoming to both like newcomers and like very um, expert people. They have like mix of people from academia and from uh, you know, very engineering backgrounds. They have people coming from JavaScript side, they have people coming from um, Idris, right, as well. So I think like on its own, it's very good, but I think it's it's a part of a bigger picture that, that uh, is kind of like very interesting or extraordinary for me that the whole community feels like that, like you interact with the community in, a, in that way, that like everyone is super helpful. And from that, they have all these um things in place that help build better tools around that. So uh, talking about Rust compiler, if you don't understand the message that is coming from the Rust compiler, uh the Rust core team says it's a bug. basically you' you just file an issue uh, on GitHub saying that like uh, I don't understand like this output." And it's treated like extremely seriously, and they're like, "Okay, what can we do? Do we need to have like a special case for this or whatever?" Right. So I, I'm I'm really impressed by that in in particular.
1: It's cool. Sounds like the community is quite quite good with with Rust. You know, um, I guess that that helps from someone taking up the language, because at least then they have like that support network. Uh, As opposed to just trying to learn something, and then you know, not getting a response on if you ask a question or something like that. Or, um, but to be honest, though, the the docs and some of the content out there for Rust is quite good anyway. Um, From what I've found, I don't know about what what you guys have found. Yeah, is is there any other any anything else you want to talk about with, with Rust?
2: uh <laughs> it's it's cool i uh, uh, i like it <laughs> uh, i think it's the the future <laughs> we know we know you're not kidding as
1: well <laughs> <laughs> it's no i i not like
2: i'm pretty typically pretty like you know not that optimistic about technology <laughs> um, but Rust kind of stands out a bit as in it's the first language for me in 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 a world I'm kinda excited about as in it's something fresh but it's not fresh for the sake of freshness it's 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 very practical type of fresh right it's um it's something that like speeds you up but also doesn't allow you to do things that you're gonna regret. This is this is kinda uh, my summary. Uh, I think previously you've mentioned this uh, tagline for Rust, uh, like hack without fear. Th- there is another one uh, that I love as well, which is fast, reliable, productive, pick free. Uh, and this kinda, I think sums it up very well. <laughs> um previously the focus was on just building the ecosystem building the tools this year i think uh, the focus like the official motto of the year for the for the core team is uh to focus on productivity so focus on all these like weird edge cases or focus on more tooling focus on ide support stuff like this and each year our development has like a uh, primary focus like that with a roadmap, which, which I think is exciting.
1: <laughs> that's cool. I think that's a nice way to, to summarize the podcast. Rust is fresh, <laughs> but a good kind <laughs> of fresh. <laughs> that sounds like an oxymoron.
0: <sighs> you and your bones. <laughs>
1: hey, thanks, Name Cyril. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> okay. That's cool.
0: That will be all done.
1: Yeah. I was, yeah, I think so. I mean, Cyril's not done. He, he's he's going to talk about Rust for for years and years. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and right, rightly so. From what I've seen, like it, it is it is tremendous. It is
2: agreed.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you to our listeners for being here and we'll see you next time.
3: Thank you. Thank yeah,
2: you. thank you. It's been a pleasure. See ya. Bye bye.